So good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, good morning, all our Zoom friends. I'm really glad this morning we have that option. So I will just imagine. Oh, there's a lot of you. <laughs> I'll just imagine you in the room with us. Um, but also, I'm very grateful for people that were able to come in person this morning because it's easier to give a talk when there's people in the room with you. <laughs> Last um, week, I gave this talk to the Hokioji online morning community, and it's very odd <laughs> just to speak to the screen and try to have that feeling in the room. So I'm grateful. So uh, as we often do, I want to start uh, with an acknowledgement, a land acknowledgement. And um, a lot of times we do these land acknowledgements and often we don't consider uh, what we can do now <laughs> to acknowledge in a, in a real way. And so I wanted to let uh, people know this morning uh, about the Indian Land Tenure Foundation, which is an organization committed to returning Indigenous lands to Indigenous people. And they have a Beyond Land Acknowledgement Fund that people can contribute to. So uh, if, pe uh, if Dyson would be so kind as to put in the chat uh, this address, it's um, I ltf.org and I have something I'll put in the front that people here can look at before you go too if you'd like to join me in um, actually contributing in a small way to buying back uh, lands that have been stolen. Um, I feel like it's important to acknowledge where we're sitting so we're sitting on land that was originally home of the Dakota people and also other indigenous groups. We're sitting in uh, a neighborhood that was part of Old Rondo, which was uh, split by the uh, Interstate 94. And we're also sitting in a Soto Zen tradition that comes from India, China, and Japan, especially our Japanese-American uh, immigrant ancestors who 100 years ago brought Sotozen to the United States. So we should never forget that we're connected to that past in multiple and ways that are beyond our understanding and within our understanding. So today I want to talk about uh, one part of the Eightfold Path, right? Effort. But I want to talk about right effort and its relationship to the practice of rest. So sometimes when we talk about right effort, we talk about the activity part of it. But I want to talk about the resting part of it. And um, I'm also going to touch on uh, four aspects of right effort and one of the five hindrances. So I'm getting lots of numbers in here, uh, which is really important. <laughs> Buddhism has a lot of lists. But I really want to consider the teaching of right effort in the context of radical rest and what our dominant culture teaches us about um, work and activity and how uh, we can consider um, and be more intentional 
about how we structure our Buddhist practice so we're not just sort of consuming and repeating some of the um, really toxic aspects. So I'm coming into this talk with lots of questions. So one question is, why is it so hard for many of us, myself included, to deeply rest? Why is that? That's a question I have. Why is it that no matter how much I do, I feel like I'm not doing enough? So why? Why do I have that feeling? And how does deep rest fit into a spiritual tradition that values intensity, vigor, and energy? So how, how does rest fit into that? So uh, three years ago, I very surprisingly had a coronary artery dissect and cause a heart attack. I don't have heart disease. I wasn't that old. I didn't think. <laughs> I was just living my life. It was like just something that sometimes happens. I have now learned to mostly women. But the even bigger shock is it took almost a year for me to have anything approaching my usual level of energy. So I really, at first, couldn't walk up a flight of steps without stopping and resting. Um, I uh, went to clouds a few weeks after uh, for a morning service, and about a third of the way through chanting the Heart Sutra, I had to stop chanting. I was lost. So it really uh, impacted my idea um, of myself and I realized how much of my identity was wrapped up in being a person who did a lot, right? Like completely, I'll, I'll own up to that. Um, and so I had to really ask myself, who am I? If I can't even chant the Heart Sutra all the way through it, like, who am I as a practitioner? Who am I as a human being? And really have to look deeply at uh, measuring myself by how much I did. That wasn't really, I couldn't operate in that old paradigm anymore. So that's a little of my personal context uh, for this topic. But I also feel like we have to look at the cultural landscape and our historical landscape. So this sort of overemphasis on work, production, not wasting time, uh, time being seen as a commodity, labor being seen as a unit, uh, that you can measure comes right out of uh, European Protestantism and it was reinforced and amplified by the Industrial Revolution. And I'm doing quite a bit of reading about this right now, uh, which I won't go into today, but it's, it's so woven uh, into the dominant culture. And at the same time, arrest was and is literally stolen from a lot of groups of people. So enslaved people, immigrants, uh, people that uh, had a low socioeconomic status, rest was stolen, rest was impossible. And the, I thought a lot too about how being lazy is such a slur, and it was ironically used against a lot of those folks the most. Um, and used to differentiate uh, from those who were often white and wealthier, who of course are hardworking and upstanding and not lazy. 
And so we have this whole context uh, that we drag into practice um, that we can't really ignore. And I feel like it's really important to acknowledge that and to really be intentional about um, not carrying that into this place, into this community, and into our Buddhist practice. And then, of course, in Soto Zen, uh, we have a heavy dose of the traditional Soto Zen monastic training system, which wasn't really developed to have a balance of rest and effort. Um, so Judith Regeer, who is the former guiding teacher of clouds, um, offers this in a blog post. She says, what does it mean to truly rest, to let the field actually lay fallow, to be so patient that we can actually endure a field where nothing is happening? This has been one of the harder practices for me in the Zen training system. In the Japanese Zen training system, there's very little emphasis on rest. And when I do finally rest, I often feel guilty. I'm trying to change this within myself. I don't believe this is the Buddha way. So, yes, I can really relate. <laughs> and I can relate to her guilty feeling about resting because rest is so devalued. And we end up being so out of touch with the needs of our bodies and minds. I also want to quote um, from an article called I Vow Not to Burn Out by Mushi Makita, who's a teacher at East Bay Meditation Center. And uh, she says, I'd like to see the exchange of self for other re-envisioned as the care of self in service to the community. Perhaps your community, like mine, is in need of inventive ways to carve out spaces for what some are now calling radical rest. I advocate for more forgiving and spacious schedules of spiritual practice that value being well-rested and that move toward honoring the body-mind's need for enough sleep and downtime because self-martyrdom is bad role modeling. Burnout and self-sacrifice, the paradigm of the lone hero who takes nothing for herself and gives everything to others, injures all of us who are trying to bring the Dharma into everyday lay life through communities of transformative well-being, where the exchange of self for other is re-envisioned as the care of self in service to the community. So I'm going to be talking about that uh, today a little bit more. But those words are very inspiring to me, to really see rest as an act of care and service to the community. It's really strong. It's not just about withdrawing and relaxing. It's really a radical act in care for the community. So in Buddhism, on the Eightfold Path, one of the aspects is right effort, right effort. And so, there's a story from the time of the Buddha about right effort that's, I think, really uh, speaks uh, to some of these aspects I've been talking about so far. So there was a, a disciple of the Buddha named Sona, and uh, 
one of the stories about Sona goes that um, he was quite a wealthy and he was also a musician uh, before he became uh, a monk. And uh, because he was wealthy, uh, he always wore like soft slippers or sandals. He didn't have to walk outside. He didn't have to walk on rough surfaces, but the monks all went barefoot, but he didn't have the same calluses as some of the monks who came from less privileged backgrounds. So um, the Buddha noticed one day that his feet were bleeding and really cut up because they weren't uh, used to being barefoot. And uh, the Buddha knew he was a musician, then he played the lute and he said, um, Sona, if your strings on your lute are too tight, can you play? And Sona said, well, no, no, I can't play that way. He said, well, what if they're too loose? No, I can't. So uh, they have the strings on the lute have to be in the just right zone. They have to be not too tight, not too loose. Um, and that's the kind of effort uh, that the Buddha taught. But for myself, because of all these cultural overlays I talked about, it's hard for me to know what's just right. I don't really actually have a very good sense of that. So this is where uh, four aspects of right effort come in for me. So these are also a teaching of the Buddha about right effort. And I'm going to summarize them like this. So there's four. So the first is to avoid and prevent unwholesome states from arising. So let's consider feeling burnt out or um, depleted as an unwholesome state. So the first thing is to avoid and prevent that from arising in our context of right effort. So trying to arrange uh, as best we can opportunities for rest so that we don't get to the point where we're just so uh, depleted. However, the second one is, if unwholesome states have arisen, let them go. So when we notice, oh, she's so exhausted, then we need to take care of that and not just keep plowing along in that way. The converse is number three. If wholesome states have arisen, protect and continue them. So if we notice we're able to practice with a sense of ease and relaxation and spaciousness, and we are able to cultivate it, that in some way in our body and mind, then we want to protect that. We want to continue that. We want to nurture that. And then four, if that state hasn't arisen, we want to encourage that and bring that forward. So deep rest is an actual practice. It's not a not doing, actually. It's kind of a doing. And it's an act of resistance against a dominant culture that overvalues production, activity, and accumulation. And for me, it's an offering to my ancestors who did not know how to rest. And maybe for some of you, it's an offering to your ancestors. Maybe your ancestors had their rest stolen from them. Or maybe your ancestors perpetrated a culture of not of resting, not being valued, and work being overvalued. 
So resting in that context is really part of our bodhisattva vow and how all beings. And for me, always, that vow goes backwards and forwards in time. So by resting and taking up this practice, for me, it's really saying to my ancestors, I love you, but this belief that work is everything is toxic and unhelpful. And by transforming that in myself, I'm also offering that forward. So this all sounds great, but how do we tangibly practice with this? Because sometimes in our lives, we have conditions where rest is really difficult, especially those of us that are caretaking. So when I was a parent of a younger child, she no longer lives with us, I have to update my bio, she is gone. Our daughter has left the nest, but he's um, part-time, but uh, when, when uh, there were times uh, working and parenting, and then I ended up uh, caretaking for my elderly mother. You know, life can be like that. So how do we tangibly practice with this balance of rest and effort, especially when our lives, the conditions of our lives make that really difficult? So um, in the Eightfold Path, right effort kind of lives in the bucket with right mindfulness and right concentration. And those can help us in the practice of right effort and deep resting. So right mindfulness is really important. I realized um, a few years ago that I didn't even know what it felt like to be tired. Like I had overridden that so deeply that I had to stop and notice and hopefully notice before I was sobered out, I just had to stop. Like, what does it feel like in my body when I need rest? When I need to sit down? When I need a nap? Can I feel when I'm pushing on my adrenal glands and they're kind of overworking? Can I actually feel that sensation in my body and identify that as a need for rest? And I realized that I'd been overriding the deep fatigue in my body and I wasn't familiar with its signals. So right mindfulness, we can just apply literally to our physical bodies. Like now every day, a few times a day, I kind of check in like, do I need to take a little break? Do I need to sit down? Even if I can't do that right now, do I need to try to do that later? Or can I even just acknowledge to myself, so that was kind of a, a big practice for me to incorporate. And then the other element I mentioned, right concentration. Uh, is We don't usually think of right concentration, I don't think, in terms of um, rest, right? We think of concentration as, okay, I'm going to concentrate, I'm going to kind of bear down. Uh, but what I noticed is there's a kind of concentration uh, especially in meditation, that can be really tight. But there's um, also a kind of concentration that's really relaxed, right? And so um, I've started checking in with my mind uh, during zazen. Like, do I feel kind of flat or dull or um, even kind of uh, racing? And I've learned what my unrested, overworked, stressed out mind feels like. Now I know, oh, 
That's what that is. And when I identify this state, then I have some other options for practicing. So maybe I need to change my posture. Maybe I need to sit in a more supported way, you know, that gives me more ease. Now, because I have a foot injury, I have, or well, it's kind of a long story. Anyway, I have to sit in a chair. So I do get to sit in a more supported posture all the time. <clears throat> you know, maybe I need to change. Maybe I'm kind of, I know I've said the word nap many times, but maybe I need a nap. You know, maybe this isn't the best time to meditate. Maybe this is a great day during my meditation practice for doing a guided meditation. Maybe my mind needs a little more support. Um, instead of a tight, hard box of concentration where I'm trying to whip my mind into shape, can I just unfold into the way it is, even if it's tired? What if I just sat with fatigue in an open and calm way? Now, what does that feel like? And Honestly, when I do that, I feel more concentrated. I feel more present. Ah. So I try to ask myself these questions now when I'm practicing with rest. I say, would resting right now strengthen my bodhisattva vow? Would it increase my alertness in meditation? Would it help me have more energy to care for my family and community? Would it help me bring my best self to my work? Would it help me let go of negative self-talk or discouragement? And if the answer is yes, then I need to rest. And I need to rest as a practice to support my vow and to engage in right effort. So it's not like right effort and rest are opposites or I'm just resting over here so then I can go at it 100%. That's how I used to think, like, oh, I'm okay, 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 I have to rest. So then I can turn it right back on. It's like, no. Can I use rest as a practice to support my effort? So collectively, we can challenge our underlying assumptions about rest and help each other. We can't fix this ourselves. We can't do this by ourselves. I'm pretty convinced. I can't anyway. So one challenge to that is that in my experience, we often get a lot of positive feedback for overworking. People like you if you do too much because you're always there, you're showing up, you do a lot of stuff. Um, that's been my experience. We get a lot of positive feedback for that in our culture. So how about we stop that? I don't mean that we don't appreciate each other, but if we have a Dharma friend who's been working really hard, maybe we say, friend, do you need a rest? Or just in our life, we can say, friend, do you need a rest? Let me do this for a while for you, and then you can carry for me. Can we see it like that, that we're taking turns? We can respect that our teachers and leaders aren't going to be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and really honor their days off and their breaks. So can we do that? Can we take a couple of weeks break like we do at Clouds and Water uh, in December and August so that all our volunteers can rest? So we just shut down. It's, we do do Sunday, but we shut down all the other activities for a couple of weeks in the summer and also in the winter. That's really important. 
can we experiment with session and practice schedules that build in rest rather than trying to duplicate a schedule that creates exhaustion and burnout? So right now, I'll give a lot of props to my Dharma brother, Koji, who's offering a different form of session practice. Uh, yes, I heard see some thumbs up from the back row. Uh, to try to see, can we, can we blend in more rest into our meditation and extended practice times? And even in our uh, traditional sessions, we're building in a bodywork uh, session and a rest break in the middle of the day. To say that is also practice, breaks are practice. Sitting and having a cup of tea is practice. Moving my body mindfully is practice. And it's not, I used to see it as, okay, I'm going to do some yoga because my body's tired so that I can go back and just be like, oh, right? It's like, no, that is a value in itself as a practice that supports my vow. That's really different mindset than just a kind of means to an end. All right. So another teaching that uh, comes up along with right effort is the five hindrances. Has anyone heard of those? Yes, the five hindrances. So I'm not going to go through all of them. But the third one is called sloth and torpor. <laughs> There's so much judgment right there. <laughs> so sloth is physical fatigue and torpor is mental fatigue. So I think in the five hindrances, we set these up as enemies to guard against, like, ooh, I don't want to fall into sloth and torpor. But to me, there's signals. <laughs> like if I'm feeling sloth or torpor in my practice, it's like ding, 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 do something different, right? So when I notice physical or mental fatigue, I don't need to berate myself for being caught in one of the hindrances. It's a little signal that I need more freshness and relaxation in my practice. So please, let's look at them that way. It's like, oh, I'm feeling really physically fatigued. What do I need to do differently? Or, oh, I'm feeling a lot of mental fatigue. What can I do? Or what can we collectively do? So uh, one thing, I'm going to end by just sharing uh, the simplest of practices that I do when I'm feeling really weary, uh, whether it's in session, maybe some of you see me doing this, or um, at home, uh, is to just lie flat and say, I am going to completely relax my body, my mind, just sink completely into this surface. And if you have this in your body to do, if you can lay on your stomach and put your hands over your head like this and just settle, it, uh, it just relaxes your nervous system in kind of a way that's really profound. So during session, sometimes let's go in the back room and put out a cushion. This is like totally in traditional Zen, you're not supposed to lay down like this. So. Um, and I just lay down, just rest. Um, so it's really, really rejuvenating. Um, 
And then another practice you can do is uh, to breathe in and then breathe out a longer count than you're breathing in. And you can just do even five or six breaths like that. And it just resets your nervous system. So there's many, like, even if you say, I cannot rest, I have a child, I have a job, I'm taking care of my mother, whatever the story. Everyone can do those two things in their day. And it really, really, it's just transformative. So sometimes I feel like if, I've had times in my life where I feel like the amount of rest I need is like eternity. Really, there's not enough rest. There is, there is, and it's in little bits like that that we start retraining our bodies and minds to fill up that space of rest and that we can have that. Um, I'm going to end with a vow, and I'm going to invite everyone uh, to say this out loud for ourselves. So this is from Mushi Makita again, who had the wonderful quote I shared earlier. And um, people at home could say this too. So you can repeat after me. So aware of suffering and injustice. Aware of suffering and injustice. And then you're going to say your name. I, Miyoshin, am working to create a more just, peaceful, and sustainable world. And working to create a more just, peaceful and sustainable world. I promise for the benefit of all, I promise for the benefit of all to practice self-care, mindfulness, healing, and joy. To practice self-care, mindfulness, healing, and joy. I vow not to burn out. I vow not to burn out. So we have some time uh, for uh, comments, and Daishin will help the Zoom people get to have your voices heard as well. But anything anyone would like to offer, I'm happy to receive. Yes. Um, thank you so much for your talk. It's really timely for me. Of course, it could be timely anytime. Okay. I'll repeat the question too. Okay. Um, or comment. So uh, yesterday I was busy and then I realized I am so tired and thought maybe I should take a nap came in. And I quickly overrode that. I didn't take a nap. But I got curious about it. I said, well, why aren't I taking a nap? And then I became uh, in touch with this sense of not enough timeness. So I think that might be a pattern in me, like there's not enough time, and that's just kind of in my body. No time to waste, and who knows where that comes from. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say in that uh, chant you just had us do, I'm so glad you brought up the word joy, because this whole time I was curious about, hmm, Another thing I can feel guilty about is play. And it's like, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how play fits into with rest. Great. So, <laughs> Kato uh, 
shared about no, being curious, which I think that is the first step, that's the mindfulness of what is it about not you know knowing, oh, I need to take a nap, no, I'm not gonna, and getting curious about that. So that's awesome, that is the always first step. And then she had a question about being curious about where play might fit in and joy uh, with rest. And yes, I think play is a way we rejuvenate ourselves. Um, you know, and bring a kind of freshness uh, to our bodies and minds. So what play looks like for you might be different than what it looks like for me. Uh, that's one of the joys of being around children, right? They don't have uh, the same ideas about play as being trivial or uh, unimportant. Um, but yes, I, mean, I think those do go together. And even within Zen practice, I think, uh, one thing that I look for uh, is a sense of joyfulness and ease um, and not a kind of grim, <laughs> you know, uh, it can really be there even within form, even within Zen uh, container that can just be so much uh, joy and ease. In chanting, for example, there can be a lot of, of joy. Thank you. Yeah. That's Rin just made a comment here. Thank you for the talk. I am facing some evolving and serious medical complications following surgery. Your personal story and message on rest and healing is soothing to my worry mind. Oh, yes. So, yes, uh, you know, we go along like we're invincible, but either age, old age, sickness, and death catch, catches up with everyone, right? And uh, it's... Uh, I think for me, it's really deeply knowing in my bones that I and all beings, every human being has worth and value, regardless of how we are able to show up in the world in these bodies. So uh, if I believe that for someone else, I have to believe it for myself. Right. So even when we have a disability or we have, a, you know, illness uh, we are equally of value to someone that's able to you know work 80 hours a week and do a lot so we need to keep practicing with that so i wish you a uh, good recovery Rin. yeah um yeah thank you for your talk one thing that i've noticed in my practice is that I've learned how to identify when I'm sitting and uh, the all I'm doing is just fighting to stay awake mm -hmm. and that's really like taking up all of that the time and um, what I've what I've started to do is when I notice that that's happening and that I'm, I'm, I've sat I've set my timer and I'm you know in the first few minutes I just cannot stay awake then I just let myself lay down and take a nap right then. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm already sitting on a cushion. I've got a cushion I can put my head on. I just lay on the floor. I've already set a timer, so it's going to wake me up, you know. <laughs> and so I just, at that very moment, sit, uh, like lay down and, and take a nap. And I feel like it's such a wonderful, you know, and that's what my body mind has told me in that moment that I need more than you know, rigid or something, somehow like this posture and this, this uh, degree of focused attention that I need to do the opposite of that. 
So that is a beautiful and inspiring story. I, I hope everyone on Zoom heard this. Uh, but uh, just like noticing if you're falling asleep during Zaza, maybe it just means you're tired and you need to rest. So how about lay down and sleep? It's okay. So I just say to myself when I'm really sleepy during Zazen, I just say sleeping Buddha. Buddha slept. It's okay. Um, and that's where, you know, we can be mindful and present and say, what is it I need? Now, sometimes when I'm sleepy during Zazen, maybe I just need uh, to change my posture or maybe, you know, maybe it's okay to not sleep. But sometimes I think that's great to just sleep. Uh, and honor that, um, you know, the most, I remember one time um, I sat a seven-day session while I was unemployed, and so I actually was getting enough sleep and rest because I didn't have a job. And one thing I was doing with that time was sleeping more and exercising, and man, I went into that session instead of coming in like, you know, <laughs> so beat, I came in like rested and it was the quality of my sitting practice was so much more focused and uh, present because I wasn't so tired. So maybe for seven day sessions, like the first day schedule, we should just have it be more rest for people. I don't know. I mean, I'm open to suggestion like that, but um, it was just quantitatively different than when I would be like work, 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 session. I was so tired for just the moment from the beginning. Anyone else? Yeah, I'm in the back, like Carla and then. Uh, I remember a friend of mine was at a silent meditation retreat. It was not a Zen meditation, but um, she was sitting there on the cushion and she felt something brush against her leg. And she realized that the person next to her had gently fallen off her cushion and was literally asleep on the floor, you know, next, and her, her head just stayed next to my friend's leg, and my friend didn't know what to do, and she didn't do anything, and just <laughs> let the person sleep, Thumbs and eventually up. she woke up and sat up and was somewhat embarrassed, and then just continued on, but it was like, you know, there's nothing to do except let the person rest. That's great. That's a great story. That's a great story. Thank you. Um, thank you for a wonderful talk. A very timely talk for me. You know about my work schedule. Right? <laughs> I'm someone who works an awful lot, especially this time of year. Um, I'm finding, I'm thinking about um, the rebellion of rest. The rest is an act of rebellion mm -hmm. against the culture, because mm -hmm. you described that really well, uh, that we have a culture that really values overwork. And I'm trying to come to grips with not being mad at the culture. <laughs> um, and that the kind of move away from a duality sort of thing where, I'm, where I feel like, for example, um, we've really kind of, there's been an expose New York Times has done recently where we realized that now we have a really bad child labor problem in America right now. And what's happening is a lot of immigrant children are coming across the border, immigrant children or teenagers, and um, they are without parents, and so they are being exploited by companies to do overnight work, 
in factories, meat processing plants, lots of different factories, packaging your chips and things like that. Dangerous jobs, a lot of them, very dangerous. And then they're going and trying to learn English in school during the day and they're totally falling asleep. That's where they actually discovered the, the beginning of that. They, that's where the whole thing started, was when teachers said, what's going on? Everyone's sleeping through class all the time. It's because they weren't resting. So I say that to say this is a kind of thing that kind of I, I feel like, okay, this is a broken system. How can I work within this system? And how can I figure out a way to be at peace with myself while still pushing against it, at peace within myself? I need to, to find uh, a way to not be hating this so much. Well, I mean, that? I do hate that that's happening. But uh, I think I hear what you're saying. I guess I would say, like Mushi Makita said, when I myself am withdrawing my energy from that system of overwork, I have more to give in service to changing the conditions like that that are happening, right? If I am practicing self-care, it's not just so I can go sit on a cloud somewhere and be disengaged from what's happening, but it's so I have the energy and the internal strength to find my ways in my life to not participate in that system, to not support that system, and to protect and change the conditions where people are having their rest stolen from them, including these immigrant children. And it does happen. It's happening in Minnesota, in Southwest Minnesota, in the plants. Uh, children are cleaning those plants overnight and not getting their rest. So when I talk about stolen rest, you know, it's an active evil that's happening. And how do I maintain my energy and vow so that um, I'm finding the ways that I can to, like you said, push back against that. Yeah, and balance. Thank you. Oh, we have a little more time. Another one? I like the oh, word. that's you. <laughs> it's me. I like the word restorative very much mm -hmm. because sometimes simply shutting off and sleeping more doesn't fix it. Mm -hmm. And so what you're talking about, Kato, about play or joy, it's like cultivating things that fill my well back up. Um, you know, we have vehicles that are smarter than us because they have these visual dials where you can see like there's no more gas in the tank. Mm -hmm. and. <laughs> And, and what do we do that puts more gas in my tank? What do I, you know, what do I do that's restorative for me and not just checking out and watching a movie or checking out and falling asleep because we desperately need sleep and that's a physical thing, but sometimes that doesn't always capture the mental part. Mm -hmm. um, Great. Yeah. And so like active creativity, even simple things, you know, can do that for me. And I think maybe that experimenting is something that we can do like what? What gives me energy? What gives me life so that I have more in my tank? And so that's um, where right mindfulness comes in, I think, is really looking deeply, like what is it I need to continue on in the way I want to, to continue to practice my bodhisattva about what is it that I need? And what collectively do we need? Like, 
it's not just personal, but like, for instance, in the spiritual community of clouds and water, what's our balance of play and work and rest and connection, you know? And are we building spaces in our community for people to feel renewed and filled up too? So, yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't always just look like sleeping more. But maybe it does. Or maybe it's that and something, right? Both and. Yeah. Yes. No. Oh, that's my side. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're so polite, though. They just go like this. They don't go like. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for your time.